Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners. Yes, you, fearsome and generous, humble and honest in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. Every week we meet at this table for an hour to experience, educate, encourage, and empower each other through our joys and our lessons learned. We share topics here that tradition tells us there are just some things you do not talk about. But here we live beyond both the judgment and the wreckage. We share some aha moments and stories that have been left in our pockets for way too long. Every week we start right where we are. Although many of your voices will speak light into darkness, there is no insignificant person around this table. However, you must come dressed in your inner awesome, believing that impossible is merely a word. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, a cable cast on Cox and Verizon Fios Channel 37 and Comcast Channel 27 in Reston and webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Should you miss us, you can catch our archive, Frankly Speaking Radio show on TuneIn or Apple Podcasts. And if you feel like connecting with me offline, that's easy too. Email me at tyra at tyragarlington.com Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm listening. Last year, globally, our world was challenged in a way it hadn't been for over 100 years. An invisible enemy invaded our privacy, our routines, our expectations, and our hopes. Here in the United States, we began to see evidence of unparalleled challenge to our healthcare systems, our economy, and we began to wonder if our democracy would be strong enough to uphold our Constitution. We learned how to speak a new voc... No, well, actually, we learned an, how to speak loudly and combatively, a vocabulary that incited all kinds of negative responses. Perhaps some of you, like me, have felt mental and emotional uncertainty and unrest. It seems that everything that could be shaken was shaking where noise, angry noise, seemed to be drowning out laughter and love. Now, I'm describing what I felt as an adult, someone who has known challenge and loss and fear and hopelessness, and somehow, with the help of my faith and time and supportive friends, I recovered, I healed, I was blessed. But what about the children? How 
has this intense season of uncertainty impacted their lives? How has our responses to this season of unrest and divisiveness impacted their lives? As you look at your children or at any child, do you wonder how they're really doing? The mother, teacher, principal, and counselor in me has been intentionally looking in the eyes of children and listening. You see, I wonder what they're not saying about the loss of routine and connections with their friends, about not being able to keep up in an online school situation, about losing interest in school, period. Now, I hear the loud complaints but do I hear the silent screams, the unexpressed anxiety, the disguised depression? I think of the girl in middle school who wants so much to escape the assault she's finding in social media. The young man who's addicted to the violence of his video games. I think of parents who see their child as lazy and distant not knowing that those behaviors could be a sign of depression. I think about the teacher who has so many children. She can't address their multiple learning styles and the associated potential learning disabilities. How do you and I, how do we see, hear, feel, and help the children who are left out, left over, or left behind? Their world, which we do not see, may look or sound like this. Quote, Home was a hard place for Shannon. In private, she was struggling with her sexual identity. She'd often heard her family use hurtful language about the LGBTQ community. So she didn't feel comfortable confiding in them about what was going on in her head. She wanted to open up to her parents, but she didn't want to lose their love. Quote, The Katafi Washington Project provides critical response to families and friends of homicide victims in order to prevent retaliation and promote healing. These survivors of the death of their youth are thrust suddenly into a dark, desperate, confusing place just in time when there is much business to attend to. Investigations, funerals, forms, and fears dominate amid often debilitating grief. Quote, I woke up with my mom and dad yelling and fighting once again. We were living in a motel room. The fight ended with my mom pushing my dad toward the door yelling, Get the hell out! and my dad walking out and taking the car. Soon after, the bitter motel manager, who always reeked of cigarette smoke, knocked on the door. My mom looked out the window, wishing it wasn't him. She hadn't paid for the past week. She looked at me, then glanced at my two sisters, who were sitting on the bed watching cartoons. Slowly, she opened the door, stood quietly, waiting for the manager to speak. After a long second of staring angrily at the floor, he finally looked up and said, Christine, I need you out of here by noon today, or I'll be forced to call the cops. 
and have you escorted out. Quote, Black teens in the United States encounter racism almost every day. Many teens recognize that racist acts and experiences have been a fixture of American society since before the United States was even its own country. But as black teens think about and understand racism today, they might find their own resilience as well and begin to fight for social justice. Sometimes to ignore is easier and yet fact among all children 18 years under 18 years in the United States 43% live in low income families and 21% approximately 1 in 5 live below the poverty line fact every year globally 3.1 million children die that's 8,500 children per day due to poor nutrition. Fact, suicide is the second leading cause of death for children, adolescents, and young adults ages 15 to 24. Fact, among younger children, suicide attempts are often impulsive. They may be associated with feelings of sadness, confusion, anger, or problems with attention and hyperactivity. Fact. Previous research has shown that children or parents who have an illicit drug use disorder are at higher risk for mental and behavioral disorders. Fact. One of the worst effects of gang membership is the exposure to violence. Fact. Child trauma refers to a scary, dangerous, violent, or life-threatening event that happened to a child 0 to 18 years of age. Ironically, it's no longer safe for a parent to say, you know, my child would never. Are the challenges of our children uncomfortable to talk about, to think about, to experience, to solve? Yes. Are the challenges of our children necessary to talk about, to think about, experience, to solve? Yes. The challenge for all of us today is to be a lighthouse in the life of the next generation. Be on the lookout for lost souls. Be alert to those who may be in need and have nowhere to go or no way to get there. Be a lighthouse to a child. Protect a child. You don't have to say much. Just let the child know you are there should the need arise. My guest today has committed her professional life to supporting, encouraging, and empowering children and families in trouble through transformation into an improved quality of life. She has shared her opinions in several appearances to include the Dr. Eyes Show, Huffington Post, NBC4, Howard University's WHUR 96.3 as a relationship expert. I will let her share her own story as 
our next chapter in the Frankly Speaking Human Library. Meet Dr. Rosalind B. Baker Black, affectionately known as Dr. Roz. Dr. Roz, the mic is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show tonight, Tyra. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I want you to make our listeners know who you are. Talk to them about your journey to becoming Dr. Raj. You didn't suddenly wake up one day and say, hey, this is who I am. <laughs> no, I didn't. I am a um, small-town girl from Rome, Georgia. I uh, received my Bachelor of Arts in Psychology at Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, where I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Sheila Peters. She was the first black woman to receive her PhD in clinical psychology at Vanderbilt University. And I had the honor and privilege of her being my professor and working on research projects with her. And through that, you know, I was able to see see that see myself that I could actually be a clinical psychologist and that I could help little, you know, brown and black little boys and girls. And so it was a wonderful experience to to work under her tutelage and to be able to see myself as doing this work as well. It's and a- growing up, you know, as a young girl, all my friends used to come to me all the time with all their issues. And so it's just only natural that I became a clinical psychologist. Only natural that this happened. Um, <laughs> so after, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just, you know, there were a couple, I don't want to skip over your mentor. I want to talk about how important it is to have one. But um, oh, include in the in your introduction, what's the best advice she gave you to encourage you on the path? I don't want to get too far away from her and, and the path. That, you know what, that is, that is a great question. And it wasn't so much of what she said, but it was what I saw her do. Ah. She ran a, yeah, she ran a, a study on relational aggression for girls. Uh-huh. And so I had the opportunity to work with um, juvenile delinquents, girls, and, um, you know, um, girls who had not been adjudicated. So had the opportunity to see the differences, differences and how some people could make the choice and, you know, being caught up in the legal system and the difference in how some people, you know, didn't make the wrong decision. And so it was a great opportunity to work with her, to see the work that she was doing to try to understand girls Mm -hmm. and how we become aggressive. It was fantastic work um, working with her. You know, she just did an amazing job in terms of, getting us to see past the surface level, if that makes sense. It does. It does. You know, it's easy to say, oh, this girl was raised in an inner city population, so of course she's going to be, you know, in trouble with the law. Yes, She doesn't mean anything different. You know, but she really encouraged us to think past that and to really see, you know, a client for who they are, you know, or study subject for who they are and all of their experiences in life not just their environmental experience. And so Dr. Sheila Peters was it she's she's still at Fisk University today, still still doing research. And so she is a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal clinical psychologist. 
And you know what I heard you say about Dr. Peters was what most of us don't realize is people are watching what we do most of the time mm-hmm. more than what, what we say. And the other thing I loved, uh, what she taught you and what you're saying now, is to look beyond the environment. It's um, mm-hmm. one of the things I like to say is when you meet someone, generally uh, you meet them beyond chapter one of their lives. So you really don't know the story. Uh, mm-hmm. that brought them to that point. But I interrupted you, but I didn't want Dr. Peters to get away. <laughs> no, that's, that's okay. Uh, after I graduated from Fisk University, I moved here to the D.C. metro area to um, obtain my doctorate in clinical psychology with a focus on family and children. And so I've had the opportunity to work at some amazing, amazing agencies amazing nonprofits, doing some amazing work with helping children that are in the system, helping children who have been, um, you know, have been sexually abused. So I have worked with the perpetrator and the victim. Okay, let's not go past that. Okay. one. No, I'm serious about this because uh, that's like the silent scream I was talking about. Um, I sexually abuse children. Uh, present in all different kinds of ways and it's a it's such a special and tender place and we don't talk about it so I don't want since mm-hmm. you've done that I don't want us to skip over it um, what are some of the the indicators that you ran across that would would tell you or tell a parent or tell a counselor or tell a friend that there was trouble there well, I think um, the first thing that I would share with your audience is just be careful who your kids are around and look at their, observe their behavior when they're in the presence of someone. So if there's, you know, an uncle who's like, oh, come to Uncle Charlie a hug, and your child is, is resistant uh-huh. to, doing, to doing that, then don't force your child to go do that. Okay. Because whether, they, whether anything has happened or not, what you are telling your child is when your child is unsure, you're giving them permission to step into uncertainty. Okay. And it may not be safe for them. Okay, okay. And and so some okay, I like that. I like that because it's I've watched parents do that, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's just your mm-hmm. uncle. And children have instincts. So mm-hmm, they do. The other thing I heard you say is let your child know you believe in them. You know, like Absolutely. you don't want to go there. Okay. All right. So what? Okay. All right. That's the. Because in that process, you're also teaching them boundaries. Yes. Boundaries. Okay. And that's the important thing. You want your children to have healthy boundaries. You want to ensure, and you want to ensure that you're modeling that for your children. So if you don't feel safe with something, if they feel uncomfortable, and you can see it because typically when kids are uncomfortable around an adult, they will pull, they will pull away. Mm-hmm. They will hide their face. They may start crying. They, they may run behind your leg to hide behind your leg. Mm-hmm. And those are signs that they do not feel comfortable in that space. And as the parent, you must respect that, respect that they, that they are trying to create a boundary because they don't feel comfortable and they don't feel safe. And not that you, not that something may have happened mm-hmm. with an individual, but they may have just seen something 
that did not make them feel safe to be to be next to that person. And you just gave us another clue. Children observing things out of our presence, mm-hmm. out of supervised presence. There's so much available in this 24-7 mm-hmm. whatever. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, things that are presented to them for which they don't have a readiness and they're not able to cope yet. So, okay, all right. I'm taking this in. I guess my listeners figured that out. Oh, Tyra went to school tonight with Dr. Roz. Uh, (laughs) That's okay. Tell me about some of the nonprofits. How do they, one, how are they funded? How do they get their clientele? Are they referrals? How does that work? Um, so the nonprofit that um, I'm the COO of a nonprofit here in um, the D.C. metro area. And so we receive our referrals from a feeder school. So we, we primarily work with um, middle school at-risk girls. Okay. And so we, mm-hmm, we receive the referrals from their um, guidance counselors oh. in the schools. So the school, the school makes a lot of referrals mm-hmm. because they're, <clears throat> they're spending more time with the kids. Yes. They're seeing more of those abnormal behaviors because if you think about it, they're with a student eight hours a day. Yes. So they are, you know, when there is trauma, students cannot hide from that trauma. It's going to be exhibited in some form or fashion. And typically because they are eight hours at school, that's where most of it is happening. So guidance counselors are really um, are, are really a great resource. I would encourage the parents to get to know your guidance counselor at your school, mm. at your child's school, mm-hmm. to develop that relationship with them and encourage your child that it's okay to go see the guidance counselor. It's okay to develop a relationship with the guidance counselor because they, they know that they can always go to their counselor now, you know, they, yeah. to know that that's a safe, safe place. The thing that um, is on the tip of my tongue as I listen to you, because I've been in the classroom and I've been a counselor, is teachers are significant in that pipeline as well as they Mm -hmm. can observe the child's social behavior in the classroom. And what most people don't understand, and I think the pandemic has really raised the value and the understanding of the role that teachers play, but um, they love their children. They see their children, and they may see flags. And if they are not necessarily going directly to the parent, they can make the linkage with the guidance counselor who can then, in her role, reach out to the parent. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So what we have is what we have is a collaboration raising our children. We've got the mm-hmm. home. We've got the school, if we're lucky. We've got the church. We've got mentors. And, yes, we've got peer pressure. Can you talk? One thing I don't want to skip. I mentioned trauma, and you mentioned trauma. As the professional, talk a little bit about what trauma is so our listeners can feel comfortable uh, with our operational definition on the show. That's a great question, um, Tyree, because people – really don't know what trauma looks like. Yes. They don't know what it is, how it affects us. Yes. And and it, may, and it may affect us all very differently. It really is based on your experience. But trauma is a person's um, emotional response to a distressing experience. So 
many of us will experience trauma in our life. Like we, every it, it is the norm to have some form of trauma. Mm-hmm. It's not like you can ever escape it because we, you know, you can't dictate what your future may look like. Life is very unpredictable, so you don't know what may happen. Right. Um, most traumatic events tend, tend to be very sudden and unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And many can involve like a serious threat to life, like bodily injury or death. And it feels it feels beyond beyond a person's control. So that feeling of this may happen to me and I can't control it mm-hmm. and I don't know how to control it. So so going back to the kid who is shying away from from the scary uncle. Mm-hmm. Maybe they saw something and they're like, you know, I don't like that. And I know that I'm a little person. I can't control that because he's much bigger than me. Ah, okay. And that, that may be the reason why they are pulling away from that situation. They may not want to be in that, in that person's presence because they don't have control over their person. And if you think about it, children are, are one of our most vulnerable populations because they still depend on their parents for things. They still need their parents. Yes. They need their parents to make proper assessments for them because, not to get too scientific, but, um, you know, our frontal lobe doesn't develop until we are adults. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, you know, when children do things, and you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe my kid just did, did this. Why did my child do that? Mm-hmm. Well, your child's frontal lobe has not developed. And, and in our frontal lobe, what takes place in our uh, frontal lobe is our executive decision-making. Uh-huh. So it's where we, it's where anger resides. It's it's how we um, interpret things. It's our thought processes. So if you think about that, a kid is not able to process like an adult would. And so, yes, a kid is probably going to make decisions based on the limited understanding of, of their thought process, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Um, I'm thinking going back to uh, what you were doing with uh, Dr. Peters, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. also you're mentioning mentioning sexual abuse, uh, which is traumatic. I'm thinking of kids that watch uh, domestic violence among mm-hmm. their parents. That probably is trauma. And I'm, Absolutely. I'm thinking something that the world watched on television last spring was traumatic and absolutely so now we identify what trauma is how do we deal with it well first of all you know i i always tell people this if you if your child has experienced any kind of trauma it could be um, from a car wreck it could Uh be from a fight at school Okay. It could be um, vicarious trauma, like looking at something on TV, and they are having a strong reaction to it. Yes. I mean, you know, we. I think. I think the world had a strong reaction to. Um, may he rest in peace, George Floyd. Yes. I think that is the opportunity to begin the conversation with your child about what what are you experiencing? How does that feel in your body? What are you thinking about that? Because when you can tap into someone's thoughts. Mm-hmm. their thoughts kind of influence how they feel, yes. right? Uh-huh. And then their thoughts and their feelings influence how they behave. So when you can understand someone's thought process and how they're feeling about a situation, mm-hmm. then you then can understand their behavior. 
Okay. So when you are struggling, trying to figure out what is your what is going on with your child, ask the questions. What 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 do you think about the situation? You know, it, it it's an unfortunate situation of what happened to Mr. Um, Floyd, but it allowed us to have those very hard conversations. It forced it us. Allowed, it forced yeah. us. Yes. And I'm thinking of I've I've ha- I've been blessed to be around a lot of intergenerational people with younger children, mm-hmm. even being around just young adults, and how they translate. I think the thing that you said was so important, start with a question, you know. Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. assume that you know what's going on with any child, your child or anybody's child, but start with the question. I think I loved it when you said, okay, what are you thinking? How are you feeling about what you're thinking, right? And mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and you're watching the behavior as they're responding to you. And I guess at that point it's important to reaffirm that that's okay to feel that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I tell all my clients, you can have any emotion you desire to have. Whatever you're feeling in the moment, don't suppress it. Feel it. Yes. Because it is human nature to have emotions about a situation. What matters is what you do when you're having that emotional expression. Right, right, right. Yes. So, so getting people to understand, and, and when you, you can teach your children this, <clears throat> getting to understand, because typically what they feel first, uh, what happens first is that their emotions, right? Yes. They feel a certain way. But teaching them to relate the, those emotions to what they're thinking. Mm-hmm can help you, um, you know, maintain their behavior, if that makes sense. It does. Now, let's, um, okay, you said a lot of things that are helpful to me, and I suspect to many, many people listening. My question is, if you are unable to make that connection with your child and you sense that something is very wrong, and maybe the guidance counselor has not approached you, and maybe you haven't approached the guidance counselor, but you need help. How would you suggest a parent go to a guidance counselor or even come to someone like you about a child? Would they come with the child? How would that work, do you think, to be most productive? Um, actually, the best thing to do, the first thing you want to do is that you want to assess behavior. Okay have a timeline of when the behavior change. So if you had a very, you know, crugacious child who loved to sing and dance and then all of a sudden they're shut down and you're like, what's going on with my child? And they're isolating in their room. Mm-hmm. You know, what? You, you need to know what, what is their baseline behavior. Okay, baseline. Right? And then, then, um, you know, then then take account of what they're what they are exhibiting now because all of that information will allow a mental health professional to make a diagnosis. Okay. So And in that process Okay. In that process you you, you want to think about what may have happened, what has happened that may have triggered this, what may be going on, did something happen at school, did something happen in the home, um, did something happen with a friend? Okay. That may have brought this on. Okay. And so you 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 want to be very have a very clear picture picture. So when you do um 
step in to do the intake with the mental health professional, you can provide that information because that gives the if if you're relying on the child mm-hmm. to provide that information, mm-hmm. most kids can't verbalize how they feel. Right, right, right. So the parents would would really need to be kind of like the spokesperson spokesperson for their child in that moment. Okay. To relay that information so that we can get a good sense of where we need to start to work with your child. Now, another okay. thing that I I think is helpful to talk about is expectations. If a parent comes to you or to a guidance counselor with a child, you're probably not going to figure it out in the next 15 minutes or hour or come up with a, yeah. a solution, <laughs> right? <laughs> so yeah, no. We- we don't have magic wands. If we did, we could heal the world, right? Yes, 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 yes. I do. I do understand. I do. So, um, an example of a situation you heard me talk about: uh, the young lady, uh, a middle school young lady, who is, and I, you know, I have this because it's realistic. I'm, I'm using it. Uh, who is traumatized mm-hmm. by what's happening to her? Cyberbullying on social media. And she does not know how to respond, and she's hurt, which also means she's probably angry, but she feels very powerless because there's no face to what's going on. How, how would you have a conversation with her that may help her take a step toward better? That's a great question. Um, first, I would encourage parents, if your child has, if you don't think that your child could handle social media, your child probably shouldn't have an account. Okay. Basically. Okay. And then secondly, you have to be an engaged parent, so you should have the passwords to the accounts because kids will hide things. They'll have um, they'll have a different um, profile than what you think. <laughs> you yes. know, they'll have several profiles, or they'll change that. So some of the things that happen with our girls is that they were they will put things in their story mm-hmm. because it disappears within 24 hours. Like on Instagram, it disappears within 24 hours. So right. It kind of erases the proof. So you should be very engaged in how they are interacting on social media. Okay. Very engaged. And what if you are not comfortable with social media as a parent? What do you do? Go to Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. You know, we, we yes. I am very serious. There are people that, well, I don't know. I, I don't know technology. I don't like it. I don't know what they're doing. They're on their phones. And, and I'm saying, well, do you feel like it may be important for you to know what they're doing? And um, it absolutely is important for you to know. So we're at a time now where technology had was our saving grace through this pandemic. Yes. So as a parent, you have to be informed on what it is that your child is doing. So, you know, you, you can go to Google or you can go to YouTube and you can figure out how to work any of these social media platforms. Say that again. So they'll hear you. There are directions that are actually online Uh, (laughs) that will walk you through how to check out your child's behavior online and also set up uh, uh, protocols for what they watch and what they can access. That's available to them as well. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Google and YouTube is your best friend. 
<laughs> there are so many tutorials, especially on YouTube. You yes. know, there's a, you can you can almost get a degree in anything off YouTube, basically. That's true. Because there are so many people on there teaching and showing you how to do things, and so you can't be afraid of it. You 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 don't want to be the parent that you know your your child is being cyberbullied and you're not proactively advocating for your child. If you don't know what's going on, you can't do, you can't advocate for your child. So you always want to be in the know of what's happening with your child. And I, you, you talk about YouTube. This is an aside anecdote. I went to a birthday party for a 13 year old and uh, her dad was sitting there with YouTube trying to figure out how to make cotton candy <laughs> because yeah. the machine was sitting there and he was like, okay, how do I do this? And it's true. It really is true. But um, let's get back to uh, helping our children. You said something to me when we first chatted. You said, Tara, it, you can't treat the child without treating the family, and you can't treat the family without treating the child. Can you talk to us a little bit more about why you say that and the impact of trying to do one without the other? Without the other? Yes, because as a family systems therapist, I look at the family as a whole. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a parent, you are your child's first teacher. Yes. So how your child is interacting or behaving, they probably learned it from you, <laughs> unfortunately. That's true. <laughs> so if you are screaming and hollering at them, you're, you're only having an adult temper tantrum. So you're teaching them what to do when they're frustrated. Yes. So when they go to school and they're like screaming at the teacher, you know, not listening to authority, they they are learning that from you. So if you want their behavior to change, you have to model something very differently. You have to show them something very differently. If you're always aggressive and cannot manage conflict, you're te you're teaching your children that that that's how the world is. So you have to be very careful in what it is that you show your children. So, you know, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I'm trying to figure out, that sounds so logical to me, and I know it's difficult. Mm -hmm. I understand that because it involves behavioral mm -hmm. change. But if you, do you have the family and the child, do you have them all in a session together? How do you set that up? How does that work? Yes. Mm -hmm. We would all be in a session together, and I like to use a tool called the genogram. Uh-huh. Talk about kinda that. Kind of like doing, doing a family tree with the family. Okay. Um, for both sides. And then we look at the relationship, the, the relationship breakdown with the parents' parents mm -hmm. <laughs> and how they responded to their parents and with things that may have, have happened in their um, upbringing mm -hmm. as a kid. And we find the connection of what may currently be happening in their household that they learned. And, and I call it default behaviors. Things okay. that they learn from the parents that they are passing down. So, you know, you hear people say, you're passing down a generational curse. You're passing this down. You're passing that down. People pass down trauma. It is very yes. possible to do. Very, very possible to do. Uh, people pass down, <laughs> pass down the reactions to trauma. So if you're very anxiety-provoking, mm -hmm. you know, um, you can pass that down just by how you handle situations. You can, you can pass those things down. We do pass behavior down. 
So if, if we're all sitting mm-hmm. in your office, and I like this genogram. I don't want you to go away from that. Okay. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at my parents and their parents, and we're, de- we're, we're articulating what we learned or how we saw them. Is that what it is? Yeah, so we're looking at, so say, for instance, um, you you had a poor relationship with your mother, and now you're experiencing the same thing with your daughter. Okay, all right, let's do that. So now we are looking at what led up to that with your mother. What do you think, uh, what's the thought process of, of why you um, had a deficient relationship with your mother? And then are those things parallel in your relationship with your daughter now? Okay. So, are you exhibiting some of those same behaviors? Because none of us, you know, all of us are like, I'm not going to be like my mother when I grow up. And then we turn into her. Yes, yes. <laughs> I looked in the mirror one time. I, I caught myself behaving like my mom. And I was mm-hmm. walking past the mirror. I was living alone. And I had to crack up because I remember myself distinctly saying, I will never do that. And I said, girl, mm-hmm. you ought to be ashamed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all do it. We are it's because it's our default behavior, right? It is what we have learned is ingrained in us is what we revert back to because we saw our mother do it, you know, and so that's how we think this is how we're supposed to solve situations. But we don't have I to keep that me. way, right? We can change. Yeah, we can change. We can change, but you have to become aware of it first. Okay. And part of change, 90% of change is awareness first. Okay. Awareness and acceptance. And then the 10% is just making the decision to change. Okay. So, so none of us have to stay in, in a place where behaviors have placed us. Okay. None of us have to be that people, that person. We can make a decision to do something very different. Every single day, we make a decision to be the, the person that, that we show up as. And it's just a simple. You can change, at the, you know, you can change to show up as someone else. You can make the decision to show up as someone else. So here comes my question. All right, so mm-hmm. I've been in therapy with Dr. Roz. My husband and I have been in therapy and our uh, 19-year-old, okay, girl. And mm-hmm. we all, do you make a contract to try and change behavior and evaluate because I may be I may be working really hard to reconnect with my daughter in a different way and my husband may be counter countering that with a behavior that's not positively reinforcing me. Do you talk about those kinds of things? Absolutely. We um in a therapeutic session we would definitely talk about what is maintaining a behavior. So it's it's not blame. Okay. But it's looking at the role that everybody plays in order for this behavior to exist and to be maintained. Because we all play a role in dysfunctional behavior, whether we want to admit it or not. We do. Because at some point, somebody made it okay for your child to do whatever it is that they're doing. They felt like they could do it. So either boundaries were not set in the beginning. You know, as as you were training them, as you were rearing them, you didn't set boundaries. And now they become these little miniature adults with no boundaries and they, or, or rules. And they feel like they can do whatever it is that they desire to do because there are no rules. And what I'm envisioning is this family in trouble, just what you just described. Okay, so <clears throat> I have a mini-me 
that is contentious and all this other stuff. Well, if that person is contentious, how do I flip? I know I can make them aware, but they just have a bad attitude, okay? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I may get just tired of it, you know, like I thought we were going to work together. I'm trying to do this, that, and the other, and they're coming back at me, and I revert back to, and everything's a mess again. So what do we do? First of all, you have to make a conscious decision that you're not going to revert back to it. So you have to see, what is, is anything that you are doing, is that making your life any better? the bad behavior. Is that making your life any better? So okay. that's the number one question that I will ask my clients. Okay. Is this making your life any better by doing this? Why are, why are you so attracted to this behavior? Okay. That makes Why good do sense. you want this behavior so bad? What about it? And so remember when I talked earlier about the thought process and the feeling process and, and how it influences the behavior? Yes. That is my way of getting to their thoughts about what they think about that behavior because it may make them think that they have power and control. Okay. And it makes them, it may make them feel as if they're not powerless and it may feel like they may feel, you know, like there's hope. And that might be the reason why they're holding on to doing a particular behavior. Okay. So when you get to the nitty-gritty of someone's thought process about something and how, how they feel about it, you then can understand their behavior. And then you can make a contract to try and change it. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. And that contract has to be, has to be very specific. This is what, what we will not do. Even if it gets really bad, this is the boundary we're not going to cross. And everybody has to agree to it. it. It is a collaborative effort. Okay. I'm writing keywords down if you wonder why I keep saying it. I got now the whole point is awareness. We've got to look at our thoughts and understand they're driving our feelings, which are driving our behaviors. And behaviors cause habits. And we have to uh, understand what they are and make a decision. I wrote down decision. Make a decision <laughs> that we want to change and not just make a decision, actually change our behavior and measure, oh, wait, specific contract. Everybody's got to buy into it. And so that means you have to constantly mm-hmm. measure, right? Whether you keep in mm-hmm. the contract. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. That works for me. Mm-hmm. I hope that works for our listeners as well. Okay, so we talked about, uh, I wanted to get to, um, I did want to talk to you a bit about suicide in young people. Um, That's something we don't talk about much. Um, Mm -hmm. It's definitely happening um, more than we care to admit, and then there's this ridiculous thought that it does not happen in the African-American community, but it does. Oh, Lord, yes. Oh, I'm aware of that. <laughs> yes, it does. And It absolutely does. And not only that, you said African-American community. Is there something unique that you could educate my listeners on about trauma and racism in the African-American community? Because that's not talked about a lot on media and talk shows. Uh, you know, that's a great question because what people, um, yeah, if it's not your lived experience, right, mm-hmm. then you probably cannot understand racial trauma. You may empathize with us probably after seeing the George Floyd case. 
mm-hmm. you may be able to empathize a bit, but you may not understand that it is someone's everyday lived experience. Like when my husband leaves the house to, you know, go to work, mm-hmm. when I tell him, be careful, it's a different be careful from, hey, be careful, don't have any regs. Yes. Because I know about two minutes down the road, cops hang out on this little side street because they're looking for people to speed. Yes. You know, so it is a conscious thing. I'm like, hey, don't be careful. Just don't, you know, I don't care how late you may be running to work. Don't speed in that little area. Don't give them, don't give them ammunition to pull you over. Like, don't give them a reason. You know what I mean? It is, it's a very, very different be careful. Or when my husband is walking the dogs, Mm -hmm. sometimes he's like, hey, walk with me because. I need people to understand that I'm I'm a husband ah. and I'm not just this weird man out here walking a dog. You know what I mean? I do. So it was, you know, so he's like for him and, and here's the thing. As an African American male, it's very different for me as an African American female because I wouldn't even think about that. Like that wouldn't even be I'm just gonna walk the dog because the dog has to go out, right? But for him, it is a very conscious effort of creating this picture to where he does not look like a threat. And you know and that that's that's oh wow that just I had a 16 year old son walking home from school no from playing basketball in the park walking home, and I was driving home and uh, so we came into the driveway at the same time and a police cruiser was following him in, and mm-hmm. we all met at the front of the house and the man got out and said he had a warrant for my son's arrest and my son, I can smell the fear, okay? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and the man pulled out a warrant, uh, uh, a, a picture that looked absolutely nothing, nothing like my son. My son was like 6'3", and this person was 5'9", the whole thing. But, uh, and I, I told him my son was going nowhere with him. Uh, we would yeah. stay here and and wait for the attorney and other people because this was Florida and I was concerned. But what I'm getting to is that traumatized my son to the extent that he didn't want to, you know, when he got his license, he didn't want to go anywhere by himself because he, yeah. that kept replaying in his mind. And he went into a blue funk for a long time. That's what fear can do. And when you talked about lived experiences, now I can tell people that, but they didn't smell the fear on him. They didn't see the tears, the silent tears coming out. They didn't see how or feel how tightly he held me. So um, I like the fact that when we're talking about these things on TV, in, in private sessions, in integrated sessions, in, in places where we're trying to come together, <clears throat> understanding that we don't meet each other at the moment that we meet. We bring with us lived experiences, and this is on both sides. And, Absolutely. Uh, so um, I just wanted to make that point from someone who has the alphabet behind her name and has experienced this from a clinical perspective. I've experienced mm-hmm. it from being a mother and having been traumatized as well uh, with law enforcement but and and it took me a very long time to get over that so I guess if I wanted to uh, wow we talked ourselves up didn't we 
Uh, <laughs> talked ourselves right on through the program. Okay, let's see the big things that we talked about. Communication. Communication is the foundation for transformation. I heard you say over and over again, ask the question of the children. Mm -hmm. Ask them how they're feeling, what they're thinking. Ask them about the behavior they're experiencing or they observe. If it's a behavior they want to change, ask them, is that behavior servicing them in the way that they want it to? Okay, so uh, that was one great big bucket that uh, mm -hmm. becomes important. Two, I heard you talk about the importance of the guidance counselor in schools. Mm -hmm. And schools mm -hmm. are recognizing now that our children are in more trouble than ever before. So your nonprofit has a liaison with the guidance counselor who has a liaison with the teacher who hopefully both have liaisons with parents, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, I think I'm going to have to invite you back. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I hope that's so okay. So much more to cover, huh? Oh, oh absolutely. My, absolutely. In fact, right now I'm going to ask you, uh, to do your homework and read your letter to your younger self for our audience. Would you do that? Oh, sure. Okie dokie, you're on. Sure, I can do that. Dear young Roz, I am so proud of you. You pushed past your fears and went after your dreams. You did it. You were the first college graduate out of your siblings, but you didn't stop there. You wanted to continue serving your community. So you went for the doctorate and achieved it. You will learn to give yourself grace for what you may think is a failure in the moment and will soon understand that it was indeed a teachable moment. You are going to meet a really cute guy that's so much like your dad that you can't see life working without him. Trust yourself. Marry him. It will be <laughs> one of the best decisions you will make. <laughs> Keep dreaming. Keep pushing for your goals. And TV does eventually become a reality for you. Don't ever stop believing in yourself. <laughs> you know what? I think that's special. Especially when you said, marry him. I love it. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. I like to leave our audience with a soul food doggy bag for those moments when they get tired, confused, etc. And since we've been talking about youth, I have one especially dedicated to the young men. And it's called, If I Had a Little Boy. I quote, If I had a little boy, I would tell him all the things he would need to know to be a peace-filled man. I would let him know that if a man cannot follow, he will never be able to lead. I would tell him that commitment, determination, endurance, patience, and faith are much more powerful than speed, force, and physical strength. I would tell him that people may not remember everything you do, but they will always remember how you did it. I would tell him to always strive to make people feel worthy and important for whatever they can contribute. I would tell my little boy that omission of information is the same as a lie. I would tell him that when you try to meet life on your own terms, you may, force to, may be forced to re 
renegotiate those terms. I would tell him that each day is a blessing and what you do with your blessings determines how you will be blessed. I would tell my little boy to be willing rather than willful, to listen rather than to be first to speak, to be open to correction rather than unwilling to hear another point of view, and that accumulation of material possessions is not the measure of success. I would tell my little boy that a man who cannot laugh at himself is in danger to himself and others. I would tell him a man who does not trust himself is a man who cannot be trusted, and a man who cannot be trusted cannot love. I would tell my little boy that a man is what he thinks, and what he thinks is a reflection of what he holds in his heart. Most, most important, I would want my little boy to know that it's okay to be vulnerable, because when you're vulnerable, you're innocent. I would tell my little boy that innocence is a gift from God. Until today, you may not have realized that all men start as little boys who need information. Just for today, be devoted to rethinking what you believe about men, manhood, and your understanding of both. That's a quote from Iyana Vansan, Until Today, 2000. My guest today has been Dr. Rosalind V. Aker Black, affectionately known as Dr. Roz. You've been listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia. You remember your seat at the table is guaranteed, and I look forward to next time and Dr. Roz is coming back. Until then, remember, you're worthy. You're stronger than you feel, smarter than you think, more beautiful than you know, and more loved than you can ever imagine. You're chosen. You're important. Treat yourself like someone you love. This is Tyra.